Uh, if you are visiting tonight or you are new and you don't know who I am yet, my name is Luke and I'm actually uh, the young adult pastor here. So I get the opportunity to work with our lead team and work with our church uh, and see that the, the gospel and the passion of God is given to the next generation, you. And uh, it's just such a privilege and an honor to stand up here and to get the opportunity to preach God's word. And for those of you who might not know, maybe you missed two weeks ago, but we've kicked off a new series um, in the book of Daniel, the first six chapters we're going to be looking at over the next few months and really digging into what it means for us today. So two weeks ago, Scott actually kicked off our sermon series and did a wonderful job of walking us through the connection between Daniel excuse me, and his desire to stand up for his faith in a world that was against it and connecting that to us and how we have that passion and that encouragement and that call from God to stand up for our faith in a world that is known as post-Christian. And Scott, you did a fantastic job and I'm excited to kind of get to preach the next chapter But tonight we're going to shift gears a little bit, and if you noticed on Instagram over the last couple of days, we've asked you to actually go ahead and read through Daniel 2, Um, and so I hope that you had the opportunity to do that, because it is actually a long chapter, and we're going to cut out sections of it tonight. But uh, I think that God has something for us, but what I want to do tonight is I want to look at Daniel chapter 2 through the lens of Easter. And I don't know as though this has ever been done before. I tried doing some research on it, and nothing seemed to connect the two. And so uh, if this is terrible, it's all me. But if it's good, I pray that, that God encourages you through reading the Old Testament through the, the lens of the New Testament, which is actually something we're doing as a church right now. Uh, we're going through the, gospel, or the, the book of Genesis, rather, and looking at it through the gospel of Jesus. And so that's what we're doing with our weekend services. And so tonight, we're going to kind of do the same thing with Daniel. But we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. And we're going to look at this portion of scripture. We're going to break it up into a few chunks because I think that each section kind of teaches us something and the first thing that I think it reveals to us as we read this is that something peculiar is happening here. King Nebuchadnezzar is keeping his dream secret because he's a little bit cagey and so he's, he, he's keeping his dream from his dream interpreting team, literally the dream team. I was really excited about that when I wrote it, um, so literally the dream team, yes. But up until now, kings had always told their subjects what the dream was so that they could interpret it. We see it in in the story of Joseph with Pharaoh. We see it other places in the Old Testament. It's filled in prophetic literature that's outside of the Christian and Jewish texts. But for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar decides to keep this information to himself. But there's something else going on here that I think uh, we need to unpack this morning. Or Sorry, so used to preaching in the morning too. 
this evening um, that I want you to catch. The list of people that Nebuchadnezzar calls upon is more than simply a list of words for the same thing. So let me unpack this a little bit. First, the term magicians is actually an Egyptian word. And it's used exclusively in the context of Egypt for the the men that interpreted Pharaoh's dream or tried to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And so magicians is actually an Egyptian term. Um, Enchanters was a term that was completely unused in this geographical location. In fact, it was only used one other time in scripture and it was in Daniel 1. So just the chapter that we went over two weeks ago. Uh, sorcerers is a term that has very dark connotations and it's connected to the land of Canaan with the Canaanites and this dark magic that they would have had and it, 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 it crops up all throughout prophetic writings of that time and finally astrologers would actually be better translated as Chaldeans named after the people group of Chaldea uh, that were eventually absorbed by the Babylonian kingdom and so you might be thinking why does this matter well it matters because if the, if the king had a group of Babylonian people to interpret his dreams, he would have had one name for them. And what this list does is it actually shows us that these different, different terminologies point to the fact that magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers came from all over the known world. And these groups, or, or these people in this group, were the best of the best. They were selected from conquered people groups and warring nations within the empire of Babylon. And so when we look at this story and we see what Daniel is up against, we begin to see that him and his friends were set up against the best that the world had to offer. And so Daniel is not just facing the Babylonian, op- or the Babylonian opposition with the king. So he's not just facing the king and what it means to stand up against him. He's also facing the power and the prestige that the Babylonian monarch is able to select from, from all over the known and vast Babylonian empire. And so this sets the stage for us to really begin to understand what Daniel is up against. And ultimately what it does is it sets the stage so that when God's wisdom and when God is set on display as the one who conquers, it shows us just how great he is. But what we find is after this setup, the people that the king had called upon could not interpret the dream because they couldn't tell what the dream was. Remember, the the king was keeping that secret. And so the king simply orders them all to be executed and their families and everybody they know. Which seems pretty harsh. But we're going to pick up in verse 14. So Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. So the king had given this order, and Arioch was the one who was going to carry out, chopping them into pieces. And he asked, he asked, or Daniel spoke to him with wisdom intact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time. Pause for one second. Daniel is awesome. He hears that the king has literally just ordered that all of these people and all of their families and everybody they know is going to be chopped to pieces. And that's not like a literary like play on words. It's not like a scary thing. He literally means they're going to chop them into pieces. And Daniel's first reaction is like, let me go and stand in front of this king. And he asks the king for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their Babylonian names, if you remember from two weeks ago. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. This portion of scripture holds a little nugget of guidance for us. And one that as I was studying and as I was unpacking this scripture, I I began to really understand what God is trying to say here. And I think sometimes that there's a lot of words, but there's a very simple meaning in scripture. And what we see is that in the face of a daunting situation, a time where yet again Daniel would stand in front of the king and declare his reign not important because his God was greater, the very first thing that Daniel does is amazing. He gathers his friends to pray. Daniel's response in this time leading up to his encounter with the king is something we need to learn from. You see, instead of hitting the books and and studying what this dream might be, or instead of googling how to interpret dreams that he did not yet know, or Daniel, instead of going to prayer even by himself, the first thing that Daniel does is grab his friends, and what does the scripture say? He pleads, he urges them to plead with God concerning this mystery. And so I want to ask you tonight, when or what was your response the last time that you encountered something overwhelming? What was the first thing that you did? I don't want you to voice it, but I want you to think a little bit right now. The last time you found out something that was, that was big in your life, what was your very first response? But before any of you start to feel convicted or attacked or triggered or anything like that, I just want you to know that, that I'm going to help you out right now. Because it can be awkward to ask our friends to pray. Especially in the context of our post-Christian world that we live in right now. But I think that's why the Old Testament is so important for us. Because we don't live by the Old Testament. The Old Testament really has no power over us. But I think it helps us understand things in a context that was similar to what we're living in today. Because we begin to see people around us as an extension of our culture. Whether you, whether you recognize that or not, the people that are sitting around you and the people that walk with you through this faith, you begin to see them as an extension of the post-Christian culture that we live in. Even if you don't want to, you begin to, re- you begin to think that maybe your friends think that way or, or maybe you doing something is going to cause them to look upon you and think that you are maybe a little bit weird. But Daniel here... His first response is he gathers his friends and he says, let's pray. And I'll admit that that's actually a hard thing to do. And I want to give you an example of, of how and why I think it's difficult. Just the other night, actually, I received an email from a family in our church that's hurting. They have had a lot of miscarriages. The wife is really sick. Their kids that, have, that they've managed to have are very sick. They have an adoption process that's going sideways. Everything in their life seems to be falling apart. And in her email, this woman just wrote to me and just shared with me just the hurt and the angst, the, the angst she's feeling and the, the, the quietness from God. And I could just tell that she was pouring herself out. And so as I finished reading their email to Morgan, I felt this deep sense that we needed to go to prayer. And so I grabbed her hand and I just said, let's pray. And we started praying. But truthfully, 
it felt a little abrupt. And if I'm being totally honest, uh, it felt a little strange. And, it, and, it, and it's weird that it felt that way because Morgan and I pray together all the time. And we pray for people. We pray for you. We pray for other people in our church, our family members, people around the world. And, and lots of times we'll just start praying together and we'll, we'll, we'll spend time together. And so it's not that we don't do it, but something about it felt weird. And as I was kind of unpacking that in my mind, I think the reason why is because my human nature told me that I needed to prepare to pray. You know what I mean? Ever feel that way? Maybe you need to put on some Chris Tomlin, a little Lauren Daigle, close your eyes, wait for the bridge, and then start praying together. But it's true. How often have you been in, in prayer meetings or something where everybody sits really quiet for a long time because nobody wants to be the first one to pray? And then finally, that same guy that always is the first one to pray steps up, and he's like, oh, I'll do it, and he prays. There's an awkwardness to praying with people. But in that moment, that night, as I read that email, I felt something that I think that Daniel felt. I felt a sense of urgency. I sensed that in that moment, the most powerful thing we could do was to start talking to the one who can actually do something. And we interceded on behalf of this family and we asked God to clarify their situation to them and to give us insight so that we could begin to speak life and truth to them. But I want you to hear this tonight, that I don't want you to put off prayer until you've run out of options. I want you to make it your first response and then call those around you to join in. Because prayer should be our first response. When faced with a daunting situation, pray. When you find out that you finally got into that program that you've been studying for and like working towards for year, years, pray. When you finally get that promotion that you've been working your tail off for, pray. Amidst every situation that you find yourself, the first response that you should have is to pray. And Daniel teaches us that we need to pray with those that we love and those that share our faith. And we're about to find out what happened after Daniel prayed together with his friends. Because we read in the story that Daniel actually hears from God in the night. And, he, and his dream, or Nebuchadnezzar's dream rather, was revealed to him in his dream. And so Daniel wakes up praising God. And then he goes to the king and he tells him what his dream was. And we're going to pick up in verse 31. And this is a long portion of scripture, so I ask you to bear with me. And if, if closing your eyes helps, close your eyes, because I think this scripture needs to be read as a whole. Starting in verse 31. Your majesty looked, so Nebuchadnezzar looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on, the feet, on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. 
The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet, it will have some of the strength of iron, and even as you saw iron mixed with clay." as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the clay, the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up another kingdom, now listen to this, that will not be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. That's a long portion of scripture, and there's more in this chapter, but we're going to stop there. Because Nebuchadnezzar has just received the news that his kingdom will end, and that each kingdom that fall, follows his will also fall all eventually giving way to the kingdom of God that will reign supreme over everything. And I'll admit scholars disagree on what exactly kingdoms uh, this prophecy refers to, but I think it's safe to say that Nebuchadnezzar's reign didn't last forever, since he's dead, and Babylon is not still the kingdom over all the earth, thank God. But if you're a bit of a Bible nerd like I am, this I kind of went on some, some tangents while I was studying for this because I just find this stuff fascinating. So maybe you're wishing right now that I would get into a mini lecture on the statue's head of gold and how it represented King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was the one who sacked Jerusalem and took all the gold from the temple and fashioned statues out of it. And so for the Jewish people reading this text, it would have felt like a slap in the face. Or maybe... You wish we'd spend some time looking at the historical significance of dream analysis from a psychological perspective and how dreams of statues were very common in this time period. And trust me, there's a lot of writing on this. In fact, it was something that the Greeks called incubation. It was what they did when they were seeking answers. They would sleep in shrines and then they would often have dreams of statues. But instead... We're not going to focus on those things. We're going to focus on so many things that we can pull out of this scripture. But tonight I want to focus on a portion of this scripture that seems a little nondescript. It says this, While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the earth. Now what I want us to see tonight is that throughout Scripture, stones are used as an image of power and might. Peter, in the New Testament, is told by Jesus that he will be the rock 
upon which he builds his church. Peter's name is literally Petros, which means stone or rock in Greek. In the Old Testament, Israelites would pile up stones and call them an Ebenezer that reminded them of the powerful and mighty things that God had done for them as a people. And the imagery of a stone is also seen in Jesus as he's referred to as the cornerstone or the chief stone that holds everything together in a building. And so when the imagery of a stone is used in scripture, it, it should cause us to pause and to look a little bit deeper. You see, because God chose to use a stone to tear down the earthly kingdoms to make way for his kingdom to flourish. And frankly, this stone reminds me of another stone found in the New Testament that's worth mentioning tonight. You see, today is Tuesday. Do you know what Tuesday it is? Today is what's known as Holy Tuesday. Because this Tuesday falls within something called a Holy Week, or the Holy Week, or some of you might know it as the Passion Week. The week that led Jesus from coming into Jerusalem to the hill of Calvary where he was pinned to a cross to die. And so in other words, the week that we are in right now is the one that leads us to Easter. And we find that on this Tuesday, Jesus had a number of interactions with people. But one of the most notable interactions he has is with a group of Greek people found in John chapter 12. And we're going to look at some verses here. The first is in 20. And this is what it says. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we're going to skip ahead to verse 27, where Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This very day, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood in the face of sheer terror as he knew what he was encountering. As he went to the cross in the midst of swirling thoughts in his head of all that was to come for him, I want you to catch tonight that the, hear, or the cry of his heart was, Father, glorify your name. And for us gathered here tonight, we know how the story ends. Jesus went to the cross. He endured hatred, scorn, shame, mockery, beatings, and eventually death. Death that ultimately took away the effects of sin on the world and gave us unmitigated access to God, our Father. And just a side note, right before Jesus dies on the cross, what does he say? He says, it is finished. You want to hear something encouraging tonight, friends? He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished because he was just getting started. What Jesus did that day tore the temple curtain in half and it broke the old covenant 
It made it obsolete, so we were no longer under the law and the rule of the Old Testament and the rules and the legislation and the sacrifices and all the things and all the evil that it held. We were no longer held by that standard. When Jesus died on the cross that day, he instituted something new. He paved the way for those that would put their faith in him. And as I was reflecting on this, and as I was reading Andy Stanley's new book, it's irresistible and I highly recommend it, I came across a sentence that really took my breath away. And it actually caused me to to take an inward look. Because he wrote in response to the horror of the cross and the reality of the suffering of Jesus, he wrote this, we would have been most horrified by the moment God was most glorified. And we know what happens after Jesus died. He was taken from the cross. The soldiers took his broken, dead, frail, and emaciated body, stabbed in the side with a spear to ensure he was dead. And they took him to the tomb. And what did they do next? They rolled a stone cut by human hands in front of that entrance to that tomb to stop anyone from getting to him, never believing that it was really there to stop him from getting out. But what did God do? God took the stone and he rolled it away. He took the stone and he rolled it away against human authority. And what did Jesus do? He rose from the grave and in doing so fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about him and set in motion the events that would eventually lead to each one of us being in this room tonight and worshiping God. A God who uses stones to break down earthly kingdoms to make way for his reign. So tonight I want us to see that that God's stone that destroyed this statue in Daniel reminds us that we serve a God that's in the business of reigning over all the problems in our life. He's able to break down political structures of Old Testament times. And he's able to get rid of human authority that would try to hold his son in the grave. And the same powers that tried to use a stone covered with Roman insignia to hold back the universe creating the prophecy fulfilling, the hope restoring, the grace fulfilling Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're no match for our God in heaven. And they tried in vain with the stone that they cut with human hands. And so tonight I want to encourage you that if you find yourself in a place where you believe that God isn't able to move, I want this message to speak through and find its way into your heart. I want you to allow tonight for the cross of Christ to cast a shadow over your life and remind you that God is in the business of breaking through insurmountable problems. And something that can bring you peace amidst the chaos is the power of the cross. And it's not the power of the cross, it's not the symbol of the cross, it's not the cross itself, but it's who died on that cross. And John Stott, one of my favorite pastors and one of my favorite writers, says this in The Preacher's Portrait, there is wonderful power in the cross of Christ. 
It has power to wake the dullest conscience and melt the hardest heart, to cleanse the unclean, to reconcile him who is afar off and restore him to fellowship with God, to redeem the prisoner from his bondage and lift the pauper from the dunghill. Context, pauper is a super poor person and a dunghill is like kind of the, the crappy circumstance they're in. I just like pauper and dunghill. But to break down the barriers which divide people from one another, to transform our wayward characters into the image of Christ, and this is my favorite part, to finally make us fit to stand in white robes before the throne of God. And so tonight, I I thought it was appropriate that we would look at Daniel 2 in the light of the weekend we are approaching. To look at the story in the Old Testament through the lens of Easter. Because without Easter, without the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our faith is meaningless. And so tonight, I I want to encourage you, if you haven't made a commitment to follow Jesus, or maybe it's been a long time since you actually walked in that way and you've been kind of dabbling around the outside, I'm going to give you an opportunity tonight to change that. And if you've gathered here and you've been putting your trust in Jesus and you've been walking Him, walking with Him, I I want you to reflect on the wonder that this week means for you and for me as we approach Good Friday. And so I want you to pray with me. And if these words resonate with you of this prayer and you make a commitment to follow Jesus tonight, then I would encourage you to come talk to myself or someone on our lead team because we'd love to journey with you. We'd love to walk with you as you begin your journey with Jesus. Can we pray together? Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and there is nothing that I can do to save myself. God, I confess my complete helplessness to forgive my own sin or to work my way to heaven. And God, at this moment, I just trust that Christ alone is the one who bore my sin and he died on the cross. I believe, God, that he did all that will ever be necessary for me to stand in your holy presence. I thank you that Christ was raised from the dead as a guarantee of my own resurrection. And as best as I can, Father, I pray that you would help me to transfer my trust to him. I am grateful that he has promised me to receive me despite all my sins and all my shortcomings and God I take you at your word tonight I thank you that I can face death now knowing that you are my savior and that you have taken away the sting of death thank you for the assurance that you will walk with me through the deep valley and thank you that you are the God that can break down the strongholds of this world with your mighty hand and a stone with your mighty hand that you are also the God that can roll the stone away that was meant to hold back our Savior Jesus. And so God, as we go through this week leading up to Easter, would you please move in our hearts and remind us of what this season means. Amen.